Today's reading is from Judges 8, verses 29 through 35. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was Shechem, also bore him a son and called him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of, their, of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. <laughs> For those who are just heckling me, I'm going to call on you in a minute, so hang on. <laughs> well, uh, welcome. Good morning to Redemption uh, Peoria. I'm Jim Ellis, one of the elders, and uh, uh, we're glad you're here. And uh, this is number two, so the first one is good. The second one we hope is better. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. But you weren't here for the first one, so you can't tell me. But anyway, hey, um, I'm old enough to know, and I have to tell you this, when I went to seminary a long time ago, which I won't tell you how long ago that is, when we were graded on our preaching, we were graded on sometimes what, you know, your tie and jacket and, you know, did they match and everything lined up right. And so that was okay. And now, and after that, I joined the military as a chaplain. And so then we preached in our uniforms a little bit, which is kind of weird to me because I'm like, you know, how about a tie and jacket? So we did tie and jackets. Then we went to preaching robes, and I had this big black preaching robe that sways, and the arms go up like this when you make it move. And, and, uh, and now I'm in blue jeans and a flannel shirt. So, yo, buddy. So talking about a cultural change, um, I have definitely uh, got, I'm old enough to go through lots of culture, man. <laughs> um, and that brings up one of uh, where we're going to go and our battle with culture, and that's what we're studying in Judges, the effect of culture upon uh, the, the, and the nation Israel. But let me say this, as we Christians um, attempt to live the Christian life in the culture we face, uh, we share many of the same struggles that, and, and, and that Israel did. I think we have an advantage because we have Christ, of course, we're on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit indwells us, there's no doubt. And we, uh, in comparison to Israel, um, they had Gideon, again, who's talking to the Lord, there's no doubt about it. But the way they communicated was camel and foot. I mean, you know, that you ride a camel to another town, tell them what happened, you ride to another, you know, or you walked miles. Um, today, we can't go to bed without getting communication. I mean, this morning when I woke up, I had my iPhone set, and it took me about two years to learn that, that from 10 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning, it gets stuff, but it doesn't go beep, beep, or whatever it does. And I wake up, and what do I see? Oh, somebody won the tennis tournament in Australia. I don't, I'm thinking, oh, who cares? But anyway, and so you just can't get away from it. So I think that we, have, in a proportionate sense, Israel had their camels. They had the word of God to, and the judges at certain times. Today we have Holy Spirit, Christ, at this side of the cross. But, man, the communication is coming fiercely at us. And because of that, because of my nature as a teacher, <clears throat> I want to talk about two resources that I cannot not talk about. I'm not sure if that's a double negative. I don't know, because I wasn't a great English major. But they are Christianity Today. I bought examples. Okay. 
That's what I do. This is Christianity Today uh, from November, and I want to share an article out of that with you in a moment. Christianity Today is a monthly pub- publication, has some great articles on culture, on growth in the faith, and I would commend that to you. Uh, the other magazine uh, is called World, and it is the equivalent of a, I'll call it a Christian Newsweek. This one comes out every two weeks, uh, and it, again, deals with issues in the world, cultural issues, news issues, um, art, literature, music, and, and I would commend you that if you don't get these at your house, that you go home today and you order them, and, uh, and you begin to read and study um, and um, learn how we can live our faith out in a unique way. And um, some of you here might not be believers, and you might go, what about those magazines? Uh, I can tell you more. I'll be in the, at the Connect desk after. But for Christians, as we grow in our faith, it's essential that we're being challenged to think and to respond well to the culture that, that we live in. I'm teaching a class. I teach part-time at Arizona Christian University, and I'm teaching a class now called Christ and Culture. And in the November uh, Christianity Today, there were two articles. One was called The Power of Our Weakness, which looks at the challenges that Christians face in our culture and suggests several excellent ways to engage the cu- and, the, and the culture on behalf of Christ. Um, and in it, there was a, uh, in this article, I want to just read to you the opening part of it to kind of give us a taste of our culture as we move back into Judges. The Supreme Court's decision that the Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage was a landmark moment in U.S. history. The sweeping language of the majority opinion placed gay rights firmly within the moral tradition of the civil rights movement, and like a boulder thrown into a pond, it will have public consequences for decades. For many evangelicals, the psychological effects were immediate. Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council said that this decision will be the downfall of America. Christian friends of these uh, authors reported uh, that they felt incredulous and alienated from America's legal and cultural order. Those who felt ambushed by the decision haven't been paying enough attention, and this is very intriguing. The ruling was the result of cultural trends that emerged in the context of heterosexual, not homosexual relationships. During the 60s and 70s, which I was part of, America saw a concentrated cultural revolution, the triumph of radical individualism, particularly in sexual ethics. Since then, we have seen the outworking of the shift in attitudes, behavior, and laws on divorce, abortion, cohabitation, out-of-wedlock births, gender roles, and now decisively same-sex marriage. Marriage was not redefined only by the Supreme Court. It was also redefined by decades of social practice. So to be surprised would be a little naive, perhaps, on our part. And I think the church has a unique opportunity today to speak into the culture that is around us. And uh, my hope is that as we look at judges and continue to study together here and in our communities, that, and, and that will continue to, uh, to press into that. The other article in this Uh, magazine was one by Chris Wright, who you've heard Sean mention from uh, up here before. And the title of that is Why Righteousness Matters. So what? And the subtitle is Godly Behavior, it turns out, is the way to reach the lost and sinful world. 
So there's something to be said as we live, as believers, as Christians in the world, as our families, that that, that, that kind of behavior is very good. It's soft and light to the culture. Chris connects our mission, it's interesting, which I thought was very profound, to a speech that God gave in Genesis 18, 19 about Abraham. Abraham is getting ready to plead for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the context. And this is what Chris Wright says about this scripture, 18, 19. This is God speaking, for I have chosen him, Abraham's election, so that he will direct his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. That's ethical living and behavior so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him, mission. And, can you go like this? There you go. and that's the promise. That's something that we today live under as, as the church. I'll stop there quoting articles and things, but I hope just, an, just those two mentions will whet your appetite and that you'll read <clears throat> these and others to grow in your understanding in the culture and the church's mission that, and, and, and that we face. What we're, whisen- what, we're whisening, what we're witnessing in the book of Judges is the loss of fidelity to God, that is faithfulness to him and his word, because Israel had become so entwined in the culture that they find themselves in. This morning, we're going to pick up in Judges 8 in a moment and look at the end of Gideon's life and the devastating impact his son from a concubine whose name is Abimelech had not only on Gideon's family, but on Israel. We're going to review Gideon's life. We're going to address chapters 8 and 9, long pieces of text, and we're going to offer some applications uh, on the, uh, at the end. So here we go. I'm going to breathe twice in the next 40 minutes, so don't feel bad. Anyway, lots of text to cover. The two main themes in the book we've learned was that there, is, there are no kings. There was no king in Israel. We see that multiple times. And the other thing we hear a lot is every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That you see several times, multiple times in the book. The last statement can be applied to every act of disobedience beginning in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve determined that they knew a better way. You and I in this group have determined that we knew a better way at times in our lives. And that's part of the struggle that we face as we live the Christian life. In this section of Israel's life, the nation has failed to take the land in the book of Joshua as directed by God, and the period of Judges was to be the mop-up time. Judges, now you're going to go in there and you're going to finish taking the land that God had promised, but that never, ever occurs. The cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence will end at Gideon's death. We will no longer see in this book the statement, and the land had rest. The land has no more rest after Gideon dies. The context of Judges 8 and 9, excuse me, is, of course, the book of Judges. The contextual ring is Joshua and Ruth. We heard in the opening sermon some statements, some pieces of Joshua's charge to the nation of Israel, as they get as as he dies and he wants them to continue to pursue <clears throat> and I'll be honest if we ended at the book of judges and walked away from scripture you would be depressed because it ain't going to get any better it's going to get worse as we go and you'd go what a mess 
But right at the end of Judges is this little book called Ruth, four chapters. And it occurs, this story occurs in the time of the Judges. And we see a woman who is faithful to God, though not an Israelite, who has more faith and more trust than many in Israel at the time. So I would encourage you, maybe every time you read some scripture in Judges, you go, you go to Ruth and go, man, it's not over. It's not totally a loss. The greater context for the book of Judges is the Pentateuch we know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the more familiar we are with those books, the better we'll understand the book of Judges. I want to suggest three words that I believe are very, very important in this book. The first one is faithfulness, and it relates to God, that through the book of Judges, God remains faithful to the people of Israel. In spite of horrendous actions and behavior, God judges them, pushes them hard. They repent, or I'll say, I don't know if they repent. I'm going to back up. They cry out to God, and then God brings a judge in and helps them. The second one is forgetfulness, uh, which Israel suffers from in a terrible way. And you and I will go to great lengths to, to, to remember something, won't we? We'll set our phone alarms six times so we don't forget. We'll put post-it notes up on the windshield of your car. I mean, you'll do that. You'll send an email to yourself. That'll pop up the next morning and go, oh, I got to call that person. You'll ask your spouse, your friend to remind you. However, in, in Israel, in the book of Judges, they do nothing to spur the memories of God's faithfulness. And then the other word is tension, because that comes with serving the Lord faithfully. Paul identifies the struggle in the New Testament as the battle between the old man, the old nature, and the new man, the new nature in Christ. Sin causes us problems, and culture continually pushes in on us. A couple things that are important as we begin to hit this, um, hit this study is, the first I've already mentioned, one is that Gideon, after Gideon, there'll be no rest in Israel. You will not see that statement ever again. Secondly, we're going to see Gideon uh, construct a thing called an ephod, which causes great people, great, I'm sorry, great problems for the people of Israel and Gideon's family. And it speaks to two things about Gideon um, and the nation of Israel. First is Israel's forgetfulness that came as a direct result of ignoring the memory aids of God's plan, which was to be kept alive by the priests, by the nation's rhythm of offerings and feasts, which was highlighted in the Passover and the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. When Israel moves at the end of Joshua, the priest, the Ark of the Covenant, all those things go to Bethel, and they remain there for 350 years. And not a judge calls or ever goes to, to the priest for any kind of input, except for once in Judges 20, when they are near the end of their time and things are really coming apart, they do seek God's guidance one time. That's it. And then thirdly, we're going to observe, Sean used this word several times, several sermons ago called the Canaanization of Israel, which talks about how Israel uh, was supposed to be the salt and light, to change that area, but they become more like Cana the longer they're there, more like those um, tribes they were fighting, and they become like them, and then they get worse than them. 
And at the end of Judges, they will do things that a Canaanite would never do because they've suppressed, uh, I'm sorry, not suppressed them. They have, they have gone past them in their sin. So let me review Judges for you. In Judges 6, we saw Gideon in a wine press, which is ironic because he's trying to um, thrash wheat when there's no wind. So every time he throws the wheat in the air, the chaff falls off, the wheat hits the ground, and now it's all together. So he's picking up kernels uh, of wheat by hand. So that's kind of unique. It speaks of the fear that Israel had of Midian. Uh, there Gideon at that time is called by the angel of the Lord, and uh, his first job is to destroy the altar of Baal that his father has. And it appears from the text that he's supposed to do it during the day, but he does it at night. And Gideon's father, when the men of the, uh, the elders come to him, he does stand with his son. He is corrected, and he stands with, with, uh, with his son. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east as a result, move against Israel, and they bring in an army of 135,000 men, camels and all that goes with that. Gideon, you remember, seeks assurance from the Lord about the battle by using the fleece in chapter 7, but God quickly challenges that assurance by taking his army from 32,000 to 300. Well, Lord, thanks for the fleece. That was positive. <laughs> and that's what Gideon is left with. Uh, God directs Gideon to go against 135,000. But he says to Gideon, hey, Gideon, if you are afraid, then you could take Pura, your servant, and go down to the encampment, and you're going to hear what these soldiers think. And again, God offers reassurance to Gideon through the conversation he hears between these two soldiers. Gideon's response was to worship, was to worship the Lord And I have to tell you, we will never see Gideon respond that way again in his life. So Gideon defeats the Midianites. We know from chapter 8 that 120,000 died in that Jezreel Valley. At the end of chapter 7, Gideon tells, the writer tells us that Gideon calls out armies from Naphtali, Abshur, and all of Manasseh to pursue the Midianites. Gideon sends messages to the large tribe of Ephraim to come and capture the waters around the Jordan River, basically to protect them and, uh, and chase there. And Ephraim uh, captures and kills two of the princes from, from, from Midian. And Gideon continues to pursue Midian, and he meets Ephraim by the Jordan, and they bring him the heads of Oreb, Zeb, and another one of their leaders. And that's where we jump in at chapter 8. So if you want to grab your text, your Bible, we're going to start at 8-1 and listen to a conversation that, and that Gideon has with the men of Ephraim. The men of Ephraim said to him, what is it that you've done to us not to call us out when you fight to fight against the Midian and, and, and fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And Gideon had not called Ephraim the battle at Jezreel because they more than likely would not have come because as Gideon said to the Lord in chapter 6, the angel of the Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. So had Gideon, call, had Gideon called Ephraim, they would have blown him off. You're from Manasseh, dude, <laughs> and you're the baby in the family. We ain't going to come fight with you. Are you kidding me? You know, and, uh, but it's interesting. Once the victory was secure, Ephraim's ticked off. How come you didn't call us? Where, wh- why didn't you give us a ring? And Gideon responds respectfully, and it appears with great humility. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? 
Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I done? I'm sorry, what, I've been, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So Gideon continues his pursuit of the army of Midian. And we're, we need to ask the question, why? He had delivered the nation uh, a decisive blow. I'm sorry, he, he had delivered Midian a, a decisive blow, depleting their army from 135,000 to 15,000. Ephraim had taken out their leaders. The Midianites were on the run. And though, and though God said in Deuteronomy 6 and 7, you are to destroy the inhabitants of the land, based on prior history, the Israelites weren't big on following through God's commands. They weren't doing that very well or at all, it appears. But there's more here, and we're going to answer that question in a moment in the text. So Gideon crosses the Jordan, interacts with some, some of his countrymen, uh, asking for food for his troops from uh, two tribes, uh, two groups called the men of Sukkoth and Penuel. And uh, he is turned down soundly by those guys. They're like, we're not giving you anything, man. Are you kidding me? If you don't defeat these kings, they're going to come back and after us. So Gideon, you're on your own. And we begin to see Gideon's true colors emerge here. When confronted by the more powerful tribe of Ephraim, Gideon is respectful and he shows great humility. But when he's turned down by two small groups of men, the situation changes and he says with great arrogance, with power and force, this to the men of Sukkoth in verse 7 of chapter 8. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zulmana into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of wilderness and with the briars and with briars. To Mother Penuel, when they turn him down, he says, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Huh. So you're going to come in peace and you're going to break down our tower, Gideon. Hmm. Doesn't make sense, but that's Gideon. Uh, and I think his response was way out of proportion uh, for, for, for what he was facing. So Gideon does capture the kings of Midian. On his return from battle, he captures a young man from Sukkoth, and he gets the name of the 77 elders. And with great arrogance, with no humility or care for his countrymen, who were afraid and weak, and I got to stop. Doesn't that sound like Gideon in chapter 6? <laughs> afraid and weak? What's he doing in that wine press? Uh, I'm the least of all. No way. Look at what he says to the elders of the city. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, uh, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men and who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. He beat them with those things. Hmm. Hardly the way that God dealt with Gideon's lack of faith in chapter 6 and chapter 7. The message is, you don't mess with Gideon. After the battle cry, remember Gideon's battle cry there in Judges chapter 7? This was the first indication that things were turning where he says, he says, now when you take on the, uh, and the Midian army, you go for the Lord and Gideon. So even then, early in Gideon's life, he was beginning to make, make that change. 
The passage continues, and it says that Gideon returned to Penuel and broke down the tower and killed the men of the city. This descent into canonization continues because Gideon kills his own people. Members of the nation of Israel, Gideon kills. I mentioned a few moments ago that Gideon's pursuit of these men in this army is unique. Yes, God's direction was complete destruction of the foreign nations, but to, but, but to be honest, that had not happened. Israel was happy sometimes to push them out. Israel was happy to sometimes to intertwine with them. Gideon's relentless pursuit was not motivated by the desire to fill God, uh, I should say, to do God's will, but for personal vengeance, for the honor of his family. Look in 8.19. Gideon, in this conversation with these kings, where are the men who you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And Gideon says to them, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Now, wait a minute. I mean, that's not what God wanted you to do. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zomana said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the camels. So Gideon's willing to say, hey, if you didn't kill my brothers, I'd keep you alive. Um, but because you did kill him, now, now I'm going to kill you. So it's all about Gideon. It's all about what Gideon wanted and what he uh, you know, wanted to, to, to take vengeance on. When the deaths are done, when these guys are killed, the victory is now complete. But the way in which Gideon acts... I believe, points to a future that will not be marked by peace for the nation of Israel. Men of Israel approach Gideon in 822, and they say to him, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the, from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And at first glance, we go, Gideon, yeah, you got it, buddy. You're back. You're back on the straight and narrow. You're doing what God wants. But in his next breath, in 824, we find out that that response is not true. Ironically and tragically, Gideon requests money. Look at 24. Let me request of you, every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give you them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels, which is about 46 pounds, quite the amount of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were on the necks of the camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, Ophrah, and all of Israel whored after it, after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now, if you and I, if we were in class and you were my students, I would go, hey, what's an ephod? And if you know it, I'll give you 10 extra points. <laughs> so I could ask Gary what's an ephod, but I won't do that. <laughs> and I could look up here for a few more people and go, what's an ephod? And you're going to go, more than likely, I don't have a clue what that baby is. So let me explain a couple things. First, you can find more about what the ephod is in Exodus chapter 28. Okay, so Exodus 28, you want to go look there. You'll read about the priestly garments. And let me give you a little bit about what an ephod was. 
The ephod was a garment worn by the high priest as he interceded before God on behalf of the people in the tabernacle. The thing's very ornate, and the the nations of Israel are are, are written on both sides, six here, six here. Within that ephod was a thing called the Urim and Thummim, which had some kind of stones embedded in it, and the people could seek God's will through the high priest by asking questions and Somehow, the high priest, whether they lit up or turned colors, we don't know. But, but that was a way that they could seek the will of the Lord. So Gideon, in my mind, became better than a king to the people. He was better than a king because they believed that Gideon could now intercede before the Lord God on their behalf. Hey, king's not bad, but if you could talk to the big guy, we're in. <laughs> and there's no indication, though, in the text that that ever happened. They hoard after it. It's a stumbling block. You know, who knows? And then Gideon put this thing on regularly and try to get God's will and never get it. We don't know. We do know from Judges 20 that the Ark of the Covenant, as I said, and the priests were in Bethel for those 350 years. They were totally ignored and forgotten by the nation, except for that one time in Judges 20 when they go to Bethel to seek God's direction. And Gideon is never, we're never told that Gideon ever Encourage the people to go to Bethel to worship and to understand and remember God. Judges 8.28 tells us this. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. This is the last time, as I said, we will have rest. The land will have rest, and this downward spiral continues. That Gideon did not seek to be a king is further contradicted in the ending verses of chapter 8. Gideon has 70 sons, not your typical tribal leader. (laughs) 70 sons, multiple wives, and he had a son from a concubine who lived in Shechem, who Gideon just happened to name Abimelech, which means my father is king. Now, I don't think Abimelech had much contact with the family down south, but we know what Gideon's mind was perhaps, my father is king. The language used in verse 32 of chapter 8 by the writer says that Gideon died at a good old age, and that suggests that Gideon had done well, and as do his comments in verse 35. I want to read that passage from a translation or from a, uh, fr- fr- from a, uh, a book called The Message, which is uh, Eugene Peterson's look at this, and this is how it goes. Gideon was hardly cool in the tomb when the people of Israel had gotten off track and were prostituting themselves to Baal. They made Baal of the covenant their God. The people of Israel forgot all about God, their God, who had saved them from all their enemies, who had hemmed them in, and they didn't keep faith with the family of Gideon, Jerubbabel, honoring all the good he had done in Israel. So the tension I mentioned earlier in this passage is clear, and I believe Sean pointed out last week in Hebrews 11, that it brings hope to us as we seek to be faithful followers of his There have been times and will be times when we, when you do well in your faith, when we're obedient, we're submissive to God's direction and will. And there have been times, I know, when that's not true. I can look at my life, and I dare say, if I talk to you, you'd go, oh, yeah, buddy, there's been some tough times back there. And we can only hope that the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the love of the body of Christ, this group here, would help shake us out of our poor thought, thought process and behavior 
as those from the body of Christ who love us will pray and encourage and when necessary confront us, speaking love, truth and love to us. That's what the body of Christ is about. Chapter 9, here we go, next breath. So this chapter we look at Abimelech, the Gideon's son of a concubine. Abimelech was isolated from his father's family, and his family conspires, and he conspires with the leaders of Shechem to rule over Israel in that opening verses. He, after all, he says to these leaders, is from the tribe of Shechem. You can trust me. Surely he would be better than the 70 sons of Gideon who were down at the other city. And the leaders agree, and uniquely they give him 70 shekels from the of silver from the house of Baal, with, with, with which he hires with what's called worthless and reckless fellows, maybe mercenaries, we don't know who they are. And his first act, Abimelech's first act, exceeds his father beyond belief when he goes to his father's house in Ophrah and he kills his father's son on one stone. And as I looked at that passage multiple times, the way I seems to me in the picture is that one by one, the sons were brought out laid in the stones, and they, were, and they were killed right there in front of the household of Gideon. And that's how Abimelech established his rule. Gideon's youngest son, Jotham, whose name means the Lord is perfect and blameless, interesting contrast, escapes the mass killing. And then Abimelech is made king, according to the text. When Jotham learns of, of Abimelech's selection, he goes to Mount Gerizim, and he cries aloud, prophesying, what we learn later will be the death of Abimelech and the destruction of Shechem. Look at 9.8 as I take you through that quickly. Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over other trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit? to go and hold sway over another tree? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the, over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, we're going from elegant trees, down we go to a bramble bush about this tall. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade, which there is none. But if not, let the fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of, of Israel. Verse 16, now therefore, now Jotham talks to the elders very directly and not in vague language. Now, now therefore, if you had acted, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of a female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice with Abimelech. And let him also rejoice with you. But if not, let the fire come out from, from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let the fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham 
ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. In verses 22 through 55, we read about Abimelech's downfall and the fulfillment of Jotham's prophecy. What we read in the text is that God sent an evil spirit to act in between those men. They like a guy named Gal who shows up and says, hey, what about Abimelech? Hey, I'm, I can't believe you appointed him. Let me be your leader. And so we find out that the leaders of Shechem rise up against him. And when, he, when, when, when that ha- happens, Shechem is strong enough that he comes and destroys Shechem. I'm sorry, Abimelech is strong enough to come and destroy Shechem. And he covers it with salt so that it would never be able again to be settled because no crops could be grown there in the, uh, in the fields around. That's how evil and how nasty Abimelech was. The scripture also tells us in the midst of his rage, he not only kills the people of Shechem, but he burns the leaders alive. He turns his attention to another city called Thebes, and we have no idea why he does. His actions certainly don't fit uh, any of it, but certainly this. And as, as he goes against them, the leaders go to a strong tower, get to the roof, He's coming to burn it, and a woman drops an upper millstone from the root roof, which crushes his head. That reminds us of Jael in chapter 4, who took the tent peg and drove it through the, through the temple of, of, of the fellow who was hiding in her tent. And it's interesting how selfish and vain Abimelech is. It says in Scripture that not wanting to die at the hands of a woman, he calls his servant, and he says, kill me. And that's what the servant does. The servant kills him, not a woman. Abimelech is one of the first five suicides in the Bible. One other will occur in this book, and it's Samson, and we'll look at him in a few weeks. The writer of Judges, the narrator, adds this comment in verses 55 to 57. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his house. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father, in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil uh, of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Joseph, Joseph, yeah, of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. That's the end of chapter 9. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, was, was, was part of my text. I will just tell you this, that after uh, Abimelech is killed, God provides two more judges. Their names are Tola and Jair. Tola judges for 23 years, and J.R. judges for 22. From what we can tell, there are no outside enemies, no foreign enemies that Israel faces, but those two judges save Israel from itself. Their self-destruction is unbelievable, and they're going down quickly. Let me offer a couple points of application. The first one is this. There is great danger in success. Before Shirley and I moved here to Arizona, I taught at a school called Union University, which had a campus in Memphis. And while I was there, I had a chance to teach ethics in the MBA program for five years, which was just really a great and cool thing. I made those students write a 30-page paper called The Dash. It's the period between your birth and your death. And what I wanted them to do is, part of that paper was to write their obituary at, at 28 years old or 32 years old. And they're like, what? One-page obituary, what you want in the paper 40 or 50 years from now. 
Then I made them do their gravestone. What do you want on that gravestone? What few words would you pick to put on that? I made them write their worldview. Tell me about why and how you think. And we had some Christians in that group. We also had many internationals that came from FedEx World Headquarters, which was just a few blocks down the street from our campus. And here are some of the other questions I made them write on. How much success and money is enough? How will you know when you make it? What does success look like for you? And how will you order your private world to protect yourself and family against greed? Gideon's need for respect and his violent, bitter rage when he fails to get his own way shows that he lost perspective in many, many ways. It was God who won the battle. Gideon became addicted to his success and was dependent upon it. Gideon had totally forgotten and disregarded the one who had called him, equipped him, reassured him, and won the battle for him. We, too, find it easy to forget that, that everything about our salvation is a gift from God, a complete gift from God. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared not we, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Peter, one of my favorite dudes in the New Testament, says this in Second Peter 1. He, he encourages us to add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly affection, and love. And he says this, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or, unfru- or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or fall. For in this way, there will be richly rewarded for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first question then is, Success, or it's not a question, is that, hey, success is dangerous, and how do you define that? Secondly, parents, I want to talk to you for a moment. You remember Gideon's father worshipped Baal and some Yahweh stuff hooked in. He turned quickly, though, when he was confronted by the elders and with Gideon there with him. Gideon then worshipped himself and forgot what God had done. He became so enamored with himself, he set up the ephod and abandoned his son, Abimelech. Gideon killed Israelites. Abimelech killed his family. One of the themes in Judges, parents, is the qualifications for leadership. As a parent, you are called to influence your children. Influence is the most basic definition uh, definition of leadership. And leadership is just not, not about what you do, but who you are. Much, much more about who you are. Parents, you are the primary teachers of your children. How will you influence them for the Lord? How will you teach them the Bible? When my girls were younger, it was the Adventures of Odyssey. You guys know that? Anybody remember the Adventures of Odyssey? You know, okay. Um, and, I, and I won't tell you how late my girls listened to that, but they were well past 12 and 13. <laughs> and they were still listening to wit and whatever else was going on in that. Uh, but they were a great tool. What are the boundaries you're going to place and put in place for your children? 
will they look to you as they grow older as their examples of faith? I want to be like my mom, my dad. Man, they were wonderful Christian people. What they understood, I want to understand. I want to be like them. Tough questions, but you need to be prepared to answer them. Our commitment to you as a staff is to design curriculum for children's ministry, which follows what we're preaching here in the main auditorium. Your children are going to bring it home today if you have them in those those classrooms around us. Use it for their good, for your legacy, and for fulfilling the mission of God. Uh, Those are simple things that you can discuss with them on the ride ride home in the car in the first early days after Sunday school, and then life life happens. But please use those materials and find good ones to train your kids. We mentioned, I mentioned that between, uh, I'll say this, chapter, and between chapters 8, 34, and 10, 6, God is not mentioned by his personal covenant name at all. We see a society and a ruler who desire to push God out of the picture completely unworshipped and unconsidered. We need to consider it on a personal level and ask the question, where is God in our life? And I'll tell you, if our conversations and life choices were recorded in a book called Judges, <laughs> as Gideon's were, what would they show? I'll be honest. I don't want mine in that book. I don't want you reading about my discussions with God because <laughs> they are pretty tough at times, and they are pretty foolish on my part. But what would people read? What would they see in our conversations with the Lord? We do know, as I told you, that uh, the narrator tells us that God had planted a spirit, an evil spirit, between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. God may have been silent from what we read in that passage, but he was not absent from that time in Judges' history. Paul says in Romans 1 1, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven and against all godlessness and wickedness of, of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And what seemed like natural events to the Israelites, to the Shechemites, God was acting in judgment. So a couple things that we learn about God's judgment. One is that God's judgment comes unseen. The people of Shechem and Abimelech knew nothing about an evil spirit going on between them. We cannot know how and when God is judging. Secondly, God's judgment comes after a wait. It doesn't come immediately after Jotham's um, prophecy. It comes after three years of Abimelech's rampage, is what I would call it. Jotham learned patience and trust. And lastly, judgment comes through the outworking of human sin. Shechem was destroyed because of its disloyalty. Its greatest sin was its downfall. Abimelech was destroyed by his desire to maintain his position at any human cost. He did not need to attack Thebes. God uses the tools of human rebellion against those who rebel. Two chapters. Man, lots of stuff going on in this narrative. It's uh, full of intrigue, disobedience, and through it, God's faithfulness and working on, in spite of Israel's disobedience on Israel's behalf. Let me pray for us as we get ready to finish our service. Father God, there is lots of stuff going on in chapters 8 and 9. In fact, there's lots of stuff going on through Judges, Lord. Uh, there's many things that are happening And, Father, I pray that you would help us to stand back and look at the effect of success in our life. 
And Father, understand how dangerous it is and how careful we need to be that when things go well, that we don't assume, that we don't go, yeah, I did a good job. But no, Lord, it's you working in us. And Father, for the parents that are here, Lord, I pray for them that you would give them great wisdom as they will raise their young children, that, that you would help them to communicate well, uh, Lord, with each other, that they would learn how to share your word in a creative and, and, and unique way, and that you would protect those young ones who they are growing. And Father, we're grateful that, that you do care about righteousness and justice. And Father, we wait upon you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.